Hey kids, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. On behalf of myself, Morgan Rector, of one of the most horrific true crime podcasts, Human Monsters, I'd like to ask you this question. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Fun fact, there is a morgue on every cruise ship. After all, people die everywhere. Why wouldn't they die on a cruise ship in the Bahamas? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. Murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband, and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and what-the-fuck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater, each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway, and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed 
or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody. Do you have an idea for a true crime podcast? I publish true crime podcasts at my YouTube channel, Leader One Studios. I currently have 23,000 subscribers who are always looking for new true crime podcasts to listen to. This is an opportunity to build an audience quickly. If you're interested in joining the Leader One Podcast Network, send an email to morgansvariety at gmail.com and we can discuss the details. Hello, everybody. Gratitude to everybody for listening, and additional heaps of gratitude to everybody who donates to the Patreon account. You keep the show going with your donations. As I keep the expenses paid, the more content I can create. You can donate at www.patreon.com slash leader1. Or, if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can send one through PayPal at morganrector331 at hotmail.com. Remember, there is no minimum donation, no maximum donation. If $1 a month is all you feel like you can manage, especially in these difficult times, it's still appreciated. Thank you for everything, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Human Monsters. Part 1. Life and Crimes Hamilton Howard Albert Fish was born on May 19, 1870 in Washington, D.C. He adopted the name Albert in tribute to a sibling that died. He also rejected the name Hamilton because he had been bullied in an orphanage where he was dubbed Ham and Eggs. Mental illness was endemic to his pedigree. His uncle suffered from symptoms of mania. One of his brothers was treated on an inpatient basis in a psychiatric hospital. His sister Annie was diagnosed with an unnamed mental affliction. Three other relatives were diagnosed with mental illnesses of their own. His mother was reported to have experienced hallucinations. Albert was not spared which would prove over time to be self-evident. After Fish's father died in 1875, Albert was placed by his mother in St. John's Orphanage in Washington. 
There was little to no oversight of such institutions at the time, and Albert was subjected to frequent abuse. He was beaten regularly, though after a while he developed a masochistic streak and began to enjoy the pain. If the orphanage thought they were successful in straightening him out, they were mistaken. As Fish put it, I was there till I was nearly nine, and that's where I got started wrong. We were unmercifully whipped. I saw boys doing many things they should not have done. 1880. Fish's mother was employed by the government, and she was able to provide for him, so he was removed from the orphanage. 1882. A pivotal moment of Albert Fish's life as a young man occurred with the advent of a relationship with a telegraph boy. The boy was into scat, introducing Fish to urolagnia, the drinking of urine, and coprophagia, the eating of feces. Diving into the exploration of his sexuality headfirst, he would visit public baths so he could watch other boys disrobe. He dedicated most of his weekends to this pursuit. Another favorite pastime consisted of collecting the addresses of women listed in classified ads and matrimonial agencies and sending obscene letters to them. 1890. Albert Fish moved to New York City at the age of 20. He became a prostitute soon after. It was also about this time that he began to rape underage boys. 1898. Fish's mother, Ellen, arranged a marriage for him. He married Anna Mary Hoffman. They had six children. Fish worked as a house painter throughout 1898. He was molesting children in earnest at that point. Though he violated children of both sexes, he preferred boys under six years of age. It was about this time that a male paramour took him to a wax museum, and Fish found himself fascinated by a model that demonstrated the bisection of a penis. This triggered an obsession with sexual mutilation. 1903. Albert Fish was arrested, convicted, and incarcerated for grand larceny. 1910. Fish was working in Wilmington, Delaware, when he met 19-year-old Thomas Kedden. They soon began a sexual relationship that was molded by Fish's sadomasochistic sensibility. Fish indicated that the man was intellectually disabled, so he may not have been capable of giving informed consent. This is Albert Fish's full account, in his words, of his acquaintance with Thomas Kedden and how it ended. About 25 years ago, I was doing a painting job in Wilmington, Delaware. I was rooming near Job on the outskirts of the city. Met a well-built boy of 19. He had run away from home in Arkansas on account of being stripped naked and whipped by a brutal stepdad. He had a pretty face, would pass for 16 except for his size, looked like a girl. He appeared to be kind of silly. He told me his story. Someone back home told him he could get a job in DuPonts. He beat his way in empty railroad cars and by foot. When he got to Wilmington, he was told no more help was needed. 
he was silly in his actions and ways. Though going on twenty, and as strong as an ox, he was as easy to spank and switch as a boy of ten. He rode for two days in a banana car. Floor was covered with straw. Five men, regular hobos, used him day and night. His behind was so sore from them, it hurt him when he walked. He said all of them made him suck them off. At first, he spit it out, but they beat him on his bare behind with their belts and made him swallow it. He had the prettiest and fattest behind I ever saw on a man, but he was covered from his neck down to his shins with long black hair. You could hardly see his dicky or behind from hair. When I first met him, he was almost stoned, no place to lay his head. I took him with me to the place where I got my meals, and we had supper. How he did eat! I enjoyed watching him and filled him up. Then I took him to my room for just what I wanted. I knew he was lousy, for he could not stop scratching. I made him take everything off. He was full of the biggest lice I ever seen. His clothes were full, his shoes and hat worn out. I threw them out. I let good warm water run in the bathtub until it was half full. Then I made him get in and sit flat on his behind. I told him to stay there until I got back. I went to a drugstore and got a package of hair remover in a powdered form. I had a pair of clippers and I cut all the long hair off him. Then I got a tin can, dumped the powder in it, and added water. This made a paste. I smeared it all on him, let it stand ten minutes. Then I made him sit down in the tub and took a sponge and a cake of soap. I washed him good, then made him stand up. When I touched his back, belly, behind, and dick, every hair fell off. Then he was really naked, and how pretty he looked, a nice big dicky and fat behind. I wiped him dry. Then I rubbed him all over with hair tonic. I loved him then, and kissed him all over. Then the fun began. It was a warm night, and I went out and got a quart of ice cream. We ate about half of it. Then I stripped naked and got in bed. He kissed me in the mouth many times. My breast, belly, legs, dicky, behind. I put ice cream in his behind and all in his dicky, then licked it off. He done the same with me. Then I made him lay down on his knees, face down, as I sat on the side of the bed. How pretty and sweet his bare-naked ass looked to me. I kissed it a hundred times square in his sweet honey pot. Then I took my hairbrush and used the back of it to spank him. I made him yell, Ouch, Papa, I will be a good boy. Yes, I spanked him on his nice fat ass. Untied it. Looked like a ripe tomato all over. Then it was his turn to be Papa. I was his boy, and had done number two in my pants. He gave me a bath, then sat on the side of the bed, 
and made me lay across his knees, face down. He spanked my bare ass good and plenty, made me yell, Ouch, Papa, I won't do number two in my pants again. I spanked him till he cried. He made me cry, too. My ass was all red when he got through. I saw it in the looking glass. How good it felt when he spanked, but it hurt, and I always wanted more, and gave him more. Nearly all night we had fun. I sucked him off first, then he sucked me off. We played with each other and rested. Then I took Vaseline and smeared some in his behind, also in my own. Then I stuck my dicky up his behind. He had a large sugar bowl, and it went all the way up. How good it felt as I shoved it in. It slipped out once or twice. Then he did it to me. We put our arms around each other, kissed, and went to sleep. I bought him some clothes. That went on for about ten days. How I had whipped many boys and girls. But they were gagged, so they could make no out, no cry. I craved for something different. I wanted to lash, cut, burn a nice big fat pretty bare ass, like Thomas had. Torture him. Hear him scream with pain. I could not do it here. Too many people. I began to look around. About a mile away there was an old farmhouse. It had the name of being haunted. No one had lived in it for several years. It stood back from the road, about 200 feet. Back of it was the barn, three stalls, and room for a carriage. Upstairs hog loft and coachman's room. In it was a bed and a chair. The door and lock was in good order with a key. It was just the place to whip and torture Thomas, just as I wished. I put a chamber in the room for him to use. Then... One rainy day, I bought a blanket, and we came to the torture chamber. I made him strip bare naked and locked him in. Then I went back to my room. Next day, I did not go to work. I bought a sharp knife, box of matches, and a pint of alcohol. I went back to the old house and got his clothes and put them with the other things in one of the stalls. There was a well in the yard, nice cold water. I filled an old pitcher full of water and gave it to him to drink. I cut about twenty switches off blackberry bushes. They were full of thorns. I brought two book straps they use in school. I took up three switches and the straps and tied his hands behind him, then his feet. Now I said to him, I have you just where I want you, and the way I intend to keep you for the next two weeks. Then I turned him over on his belly and began to torture his nice fat ass. I used one switch at a time, struck him as hard as I could. Each blow, the thorns stuck in his flesh. Often I would drag the switch instead of lifting it. Then it would tear and rip the cheeks of his fat ass. How he did scream. It was sweet music to my very soul to hear him and know that no one else could. Then I spanked him.
how the blood did spatter on the blanket and all over the wall. Then I took the knife and slid his fat ass between the cheeks. I held my mouth to his ass and sucked the blood. Then I filled the pitcher with water, untied his hands, locked him in, and went home. Next evening, I brought another blanket, a small hammer, tacks, six candles. Then I could work in the day and torture him at night. I tucked the blanket over the window, and by the light of a candle, I could see him. For five days, all he had was water and whippings. Then I brought him sandwiches and coffee. He was so hungry. I made him eat his own number two before I gave him food. Then I made him lay on his back in bed. I turned both of his legs backward on his head and strapped his feet to the head of the iron bed. Then I had his nice pretty fat ass turned up to me to do just whatever I could think of, and that was plenty. The whole package of needles in the cheeks of his ass. It looked like a pin cushion. I stuck a pin all the way through his dicky and one between his two balls. That was a Saturday night. I left him just as he was all night and went home. Sunday I brought some food and the bottle of peroxide. I pulled the needles out of his ass, dicky, and balls. How the blood did pour when I pulled them out of his dicky. It was as blue as ink. I poured peroxide on his ass and dick, then smeared him good with Vaseline. Then I untied his feet and let him rest. He went to sleep. Then I jabbed a long needle in his belly, and he woke up. Then I fed him. From 9 a.m. Sunday until 11 p.m., I whipped, cut, and burned his bare ass except at noon and 6 p.m. when I went out for food. To weaken him and keep him, I gave him food, but once a day. I gave him a tablespoon, and he ate much of his own number two out of the chamber. In a short time, both of us got to like it. We called it peanut butter and number one cider. I let him rest about an hour. Then I bent his legs over his head again and tied his feet. I switched him hard between the cheeks of his fat ass. And when the thorns stuck in his flesh, I dragged them so they would tear his ass. How he screamed. Then I spilled alcohol in his bare ass and dicky, then set him on fire. I clapped my hands and jumped with joy when I heard him scream. It hurt like hell while it lasted, but the alcohol burned off quick. I spanked him and switched his bare ass until I was all tired out. I spread paper on the floor and made him lay on his belly. I stripped naked and done a heap of number two on his ass. Then I turned him on his back so he would be full of it. I had some in my behind and I sat down on his face and made him lick my bare ass clean with his tongue. But then I knew I had him so weak I could master him. Then I let him play Papa. Everything I've done to him, I made him do to me. He spanked, switched, 
cut and burned my bare ass. He made me jump and yell when he sunk the thorns in me and then pulled them through my flesh. How I screamed when he set my ass on fire. It hurt, but I got a big kick, a thrill out of it. Many times when I had him tied up, I was tempted to slice veal cutlets off his nice fat ass, take them out in the yard, make a fire and roast them. My mouth fairly watered to see what it would taste like. I always wanted to eat a boy's nice fat ass. I also had a strong desire to cut off his prick and balls, split them open, roast them, and eat them. But I knew if I did that, I would not have him to torture or be tortured by him. I pissed and shit all on him, in his mouth, eyes, ears. He did to me. I know we ate over ten pounds of peanut butter and drank several gallons of cider between us in the five weeks I had him. All things have an end. My job was finished, and I could not afford to keep him. Realizing that I must go home, he did not want to put them on, but opened my pants, took out my dick, and sucked me off. Then I was tempted to tie him up again. Played with his dicky until I got stiff. Then I took the knife and sliced off half of it. I shall never forget his scream or the look he gave me. The blood gushed in a stream. At first, I intended to kill him, cut up the body and take it home. But the weather was hot, and I knew, as I had no ice, it would stink and betray me. So I poured cold water over his dicky, then slowly poured the rest of the peroxide on the open wound. Then I took the rest of the Vaseline in a clean handkerchief and bound him up. I untied him, put his clothes on the chair by the side of the bed. I gave him ten dollars, kissed him goodbye, took the first train I could get back home. Never heard what became of him or tried to find out. 1917. Fish's wife left him for a handyman who had once boarded with their family. She left him to raise all their children alone. She absconded with nearly all the family's belongings. Stress can trigger mental illness, and it was around this time that Albert began to experience auditory hallucinations. Once, when he was observed wrapping himself in a carpet, he explained to an onlooker that he was instructed to do so by John the Apostle. It was also about this time that Fish began to engage in self-mutilation. He would impale needles in his groin and abdomen. X-rays revealed years later that there was a minimum of 29 needles lodged in his pelvic region. He would also beat himself with a nail-studded paddle. He would insert handfuls of wool doused with lighter fluid into his anus and light it on fire. Fish didn't abuse his children, though it was likely traumatic for them to paddle him on his buttocks with a nail-studded paddle with which he hit himself. 1919. Albert Fish began to kill in earnest. His favorite targets were the mentally disabled and African Americans. 
His reasoning for targeting these demographics was that they were deemed undesirables by mainstream society at the time, and therefore would not be missed. He has said he would pay children to bring victims to him. When he tortured, murdered, and mutilated children, he used his so-called implements of hell, those being a meat cleaver, a butcher knife, and a small hand saw. July 11, 1924. Albert Fish discovered eight-year-old Bernice Keel playing by herself on her family's farm in Staten Island, New York. He offered to pay her to help him look for rhubarb. She nearly left with him, but her mother saw what was happening and intervened just in time. She chased Fish off. He was on the prowl. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. July 14th. Fish murdered Francis McDonald on Staten Island. At this point, voices speaking to him as a symptom of psychosis identified as God and ordered Fish to torture and sexually mutilate children. May 25, 1928. In the Sunday edition of the New York World, Fish read a classified ad that went, Young man, 18, wishes position in country. Edward Budd. 406 West 15th Street. May 28th. Albert Fish visited the Budd family in Manhattan under the pretense of hiring Edward. In truth, his only intention was to tie Edward up, mutilate him, and bleed him out like a stuck pig. He wound up postponing his appointment to meet with Edward, but later returned to his home. When he did, he met his younger sister, Grace. Fish was so taken with her, he decided to make her his victim instead. He told her family it was his niece's birthday party that evening, and he asked them if Grace could accompany him. They gave their consent. November 1934. The Bud family received a letter from an anonymous sender. It went as follows. My dear Mrs. Bud. In 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, 
Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore to get drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from one to three dollars a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under twelve were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under fourteen was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out, and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body, and sold as veal cutlet, brought the highest price. John stayed there so long, he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven and one eleven took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night, he spanked them, tortured them, to make their meat good and tender. First he killed the eleven-year-old boy, because he had the fattest ass, and of course the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten, except head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, all of his ass, boiled, broiled, fried, stewed. The little boy was next, went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street, rear right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was. I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you pot cheese, strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her on the pretense of taking her to a party. You said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wild flowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her, and she said she would tell her mama. I stripped her naked. How she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death, then cut her in small pieces so I could take her meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was, roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though. I could have had I wished. She died a virgin. Police confirmed that the details of the murder were accurate as described, though they could not verify that Fish had actually eaten Grace's body. 
the letter was delivered in an envelope bearing an emblem of the acronym NYPCBA, which stood for New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. A janitor who worked at the company pilfered some of the stationery and left it behind after leaving a rooming house where he had been living. Albert Fish checked out of that room a few days before, as noted by the landlady. She said that Albert's son sent him some money, and Fish asked her to hold his next check for him. William F. King was the chief investigator for this case. He waited outside the room for Fish to return. When he did, he agreed to go to the station for questioning. Soon after, he brandished a razor blade. King overtook him and took him to headquarters. During questioning, Fish admitted to killing Grace Budd. He said his original aim was to kill her brother, Edward. He said that though it had never initially occurred to him to rape Grace, he said that initially he knelt on her chest and strangled her. He ejaculated involuntarily, twice. Part 2, Aftermath 1935, the year of Albert Fish's trial. The following is an extract from the district attorney's address to the court regarding the murder of Grace Budd. He says that he took her in the room and choked her to death, and that it took about five minutes to do it. He knew that she was dead. Then he says he took her clothes off and cut her head off. Then he cut her across the body above the navel and left the lower part of her body and the torso behind the back door in the room. He took the head out to the outdoor toilet in back of the house and covered it over with a paper. Three or four days later, he says he came back to this particular house and took the various parts of her body, three in number, and threw them over the stone wall, which is at the back of the house. Now, after making this statement, the defendant took the New York police up to Worthington, took them up to the stone wall where he left the body, and after searching around to the place where he said he left the body, the police found certain bones. It is the contention of the people in this case that those are the bones of Grace Budd. While most of the attendees of the trial were riveted and shocked, Albert Fish was dispassionate. So unmoved was he that he slept intermittently. As for his default disposition, many noted that he came across as an unfailingly polite nebbish. With no awareness of the horrific crimes for which he was charged, one could have found it easy to believe that he could be entrusted with the care of little children. Fish was analyzed by a psychiatrist during the time of his trial. Commenting on his sexual proclivities, which manifested at the age of five, he said, I always had the desire to inflict pain on others, and to have others inflict pain on me. I always seemed to enjoy everything that hurt. The desire to inflict pain, that is all that is uppermost. He constantly escalated his self-harm practices to new levels of masochistic euphoria. He insisted that his child victims experience this too. Aside from sticking needles into his genitalia, he would also prick his perineum, taking the pain as far as he could stand. The needles varied in size, 
with some so long he was unable to remove them, and they were permanently impaled. He found the scrotum to be too tender for this practice. X-rays of his anatomy displayed the presence of 29 needles. He stuck needles in children while torturing them. In midlife, Fish began to experience hallucinations of a religious nature. He came to believe that it was necessary to subject himself to physical pain to atone for his sins. He even came to believe that he should sacrifice his son to please God. He tried to stick needles under his fingernails, but this pain was too much for him to bear. As he proclaimed one day, If only pain were not so painful. Despite his visions of Christ and his Bible thumping, his motivation to torture and kill children nagged at him and demanded satisfaction. Depending on his mood, he would gag them, bound them, and beat them. He only gagged them if he saw necessity in doing so, i.e., to avoid attracting attention. Otherwise, he was such a sadist he enjoyed hearing them cry. He also came to believe that he was appointed by God to castrate small boys. As he put it, I had sort of an idea through Abraham offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice. It always seemed to me that I had to offer a child for sacrifice, to purge myself of iniquities, sins, and abominations in the sight of God. Such a Sodom and Gomorrah. At times, he would fantasize about torture, often during the rapture of hallucination, and he would torture himself to orgasm with needles. According to Fish's twisted logic, he tortured and murdered Grace Budd to save her from similar events, which he was sure would occur in her future. As he put it, I knew this child would eventually be outraged and tortured and so forth, and that I should sacrifice her in order to prevent her future outrage. The only interpretation of it that I could have was that she could be saved in that way. He gave this other account of the events leading up to her death. I was in the house and took off my clothes in the other room. She picked flowers. I went to the window and called, Grace! When she came in and saw me naked, she screamed and said, I'll call Mama. I grabbed her by the throat and almost carried her in the room and laid her on the floor. I didn't think she would put up such a struggle. She was a frail-looking child. She gave me the surprise of my life. She was losing consciousness, and I placed my knee on her chest to squeeze the breath out of her, to get her out of her misery. It was at this point when Fish cut Grace's head off. He severed other parts of her body and took them home with him. Using a variety of cooking methods, he would cook Grace's flesh with carrots, onions, and strips of bacon. He consumed her flesh over a period of nine days. This excited him sexually. He would eat her flesh during the day and meditated over it at night, becoming increasingly aroused until he relieved himself. He described these events with a flat affect, as if it was all mundane, as it was to him. His children testified about his mental illness. They mentioned that he would disrobe and hit himself with a paddle studded with nails until he bled. Sometimes he would stand alone on a hill, raise his arms, and declare, I am Christ!
The psychiatrist administered to Fish what is known as a Rorschach test. The results indicated the presence of psychosis in Fish's psyche. He was also preoccupied with infantilistic and perverse sexual images, some with underlying religious complexes. The doctor declared that Fish was legally insane. One quote from this appraisal. He does not know the nature and quality of his acts. He does not know right from wrong. He is insane now and was insane then. His intellectual resources are not affected. That is true of the vast majority of insane people. Fish told me, what I did must have been right or an angel would have stopped me just as the angel stopped Abraham in the Bible. If it was wrong, the angel would have stopped me. A man who labors under delusions is not a free agent. He is not deterred by punishment. Some jurors felt that Fish was legitimately insane, while others felt he was simply evil. Either way, they pronounced him guilty as charged. He was sentenced to death, to be administered with the electric chair. Fish was described as perfectly tranquil during the moment of his execution. He even assisted the technicians as they applied the straps of the electric chair to his leg. If you are in doubt as to whether or not Albert Fish was mentally ill, take into consideration the following passages from his personal correspondences. Speaking of flowers, in the section of Washington, D.C., where I lived as a boy, we had a large yard with flowers of all kinds. I always loved to see and smell them. Those I loved best were roses, hollyhocks, lilacs, sweet peas, honeysuckle. I often saw pictures in windows of male and female figures in a nude state, garlands of vines and flowers draped about their nakedness. I always had a strong desire to appear in public absolutely naked or decked out in flowers. I, of course, realized I could not appear in the streets in such a garb. However, I did so in my room at night. I would buy a few leaves or vines, now and then a rose or lilac, strip naked and annoy myself in every way possible, in every possible way, stick stems of roses up my penis and behind. Then I would take a small looking glass in my hand, tilt mirror of dresser on a slant, and view my naked body for hours, then eat the petals of roses. Through this, became interested in nudist colonies, and wrote to same. Phytophilia. Very fond of flowers. Like to see them. Like to smell them. Sometimes I have. When roses with the stem of about three inches, lilacs and other flowers, stuck the stem in penis. It hurts, but I seem to get a rush out of it. A thrill. I stuck them up my behind. Many times I came. Once after flower was in my penis. I was a boy when I done that. Alvin came when having it in his behind. I have a looking glass in my drawer so that I can see myself. Sometimes I hold a little mirror to look at myself. I stood emotions for an hour. 
holding the little mirror in my hand, so that I can get a mirror of my inch with the rose in it. Bought beautiful roses. I then went to ease rose out and ate the petals. I often pushed string of green, like vines or honeysuckle, and bound them around my body, my prick or my behind. This is one of the obscene letters Albert Fish wrote to women who placed ads in the personal columns of newspapers as the so-called Love Lorn. This missive was written by Fish in 1929. I wish you could see me now. I am sitting in a chair, naked. The pain is across my back, just over my behind. When you strip me naked, you will see a most perfect form. Yours, yours, sweet honey of my heart. I can taste your sweet piss, your sweet shit. You must pee-pee in a glass, and I shall drink every drop of it as you watch me. Tell me when you want to do number two. I will take you over my knees, pull up your clothes, take down your drawers, and hold my mouth to your sweet honey fat ass, and eat your sweet peanut butter as it comes out fresh and hot. That is how they do it in Hollywood. Bobby does not wet or muss his clothes or the bed. He will tell you when he has to use the toilet, number one or number two. For number one, his pants must be unbuttoned at the crotch and his monkey taken out. His pants and drawers are all made with a drop seat. All you have to do is loose three buttons in the back and down they come. Saves a lot of undressing. Handy when you want to spank him. Just drop the seat of his pants and drawers. You don't have to strip him except at night for bed or to give him a bath or a switching. The doctor says three or four good spankings a day on his bare behind will do him good as he is nice and fat in that spot. It will be an aid to him. When he don't mind you, then you must strip him and use the cat-o'-nine-tails. Say you won't hesitate to use the paddle or cat-o'-nine-tails on him when he needs it. Fish wrote this letter to his lawyer, James Dempsey. There is a public dumping ground in Riker Avenue, Astoria. All kinds of junk has been thrown there for years. Here is my plan. Some years ago, I lived at 228 East 81st Street, top floor front. Suppose I confess to you that I did the Gaffney boy in the same manner I did the Bud girl. I am charged with the crime anyhow, and many really believe I did. I will admit the motorman who positively identified me as getting off his car with a small boy was correct. I can tell you at that time I was looking for a suitable place to do the job. Not satisfied there, I brought him to the Riker Avenue dumps. There is a house that stands alone, not far from where I took him. A few years ago, I painted this house for the man who owns it. He is in the auto wrecking business. I forget his name, but my son Henry can tell you because he bought a car from him. This man's father lives in the house. Jean, John, Henry helped me paint the house. There were at that time a number of old autos on the road. I took the G-boy there, stripped him naked, 
and tied his hands and feet and gagged him with a piece of dirty rag I picked out of the dump. Then I burned his clothes, threw his shoes in the dump. Then I walked back and took the trolley to 59th Street at 2 a.m. and walked from there home. Next day, about 2 p.m., I took tools, a good heavy cat of nine tails, homemade, short handle, cut one of my belts in half, slit these in six strips about eight inches long. I whipped his bear behind till the blood ran from his legs. I cut off his ears, nose, slit his mouth from ear to ear, gouged out his eyes. He was dead then. I stuck the knife in his belly and held my mouth to his body and drank his blood. I picked up four old potato sacks and gathered a pile of stones. Then I cut him up. I had a grip with me. I put his nose, ears, and a few slices of his belly in grip. Then I cut him through the middle of his body, just below his belly button. Then, through his legs about two inches below his behind, I put this in my grip with a lot of paper. I cut off his head, feet, arms, hands, and his behind. I put this in my grip with a lot of paper. I cut off his head, feet, arms, hands, and legs below the knee. This I put in sacks, weighed with stones, tied the ends, and threw them into the pools of slimy water you will see all along the road going to North Beach. Water is three to four feet deep. They sank at once. I came home with my meat. I had the front of his body I liked best. His monkey and peewees and a nice little fat behind to roast in the oven and eat. I made a stew out of his ears, nose, pieces of his face and belly. I put onions, carrots, turnips, celery, salt and pepper. It was good. Then I split the cheeks of his behind open, cut off his monkey and peewees and washed them first. I put all in a roasting pan, lit the gas in the oven. Then I put strips of bacon on each cheek of his behind and put in the oven. Then I picked four onions, and when meat had been roasted, about one quarter hour, I poured about a pint of water over it for gravy and put in the onions. At frequent intervals, I basted his behind with a wooden spoon so the meat would be nice and juicy. In about two hours, it was nice and brown, cooked through. I never ate any roast turkey that tasted half as good as his sweet, fat little behind did. I ate every bit of the meat in about four days. His little monkey was as sweet as a nut, but his peewees I could not chew. Threw them in a toilet. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.